as I was uh, praying about these next couple days, these next couple weeks, uh, how, who, who knows what's next? Have you figured it out yet? Christmas, right? How many have already decorated? Our house already is Christmas. I love it. You know, you walk in and it's Christmas. And I love that it's going to be Christmas all month. I can't get enough of it. I think it's wonderful. And, you know, we've had Christmas music playing already. And I love that. <clears throat> and you will see those changes start to happen here at the church as well. And I'm really excited about the different services that will be Christian or Christmas themed. I almost said Christian. Most of our services are Christian. Um, but anyway, we'll have our Christmas themed services. You know, we'll have we'll have one with the the adult. You know, Pastor Nick and his team will put on, and we'll have the kids one, and then we'll have one that we'll celebrate as as a church together as Christmas. So there'll be three of those. I'm excited about that this year. So you'll see in the schedule there'll be certain things that'll be a little different. You know, our classes that we've been doing on Wednesdays will end this week, and then for the the next couple weeks we'll be in the crown room while the, while the team's putting on Christmas will be in here practicing. So. Just keep your eyes open. You'll see changes. You've probably seen some changes on the stage already, right? Yeah, it'll, it'll be different, which is always fun too. So, so with all that said, I'm thinking, okay, we have two weeks. And as I was praying, I was saying, God, what, what should we talk about? What do you want uh, us to talk about? And um, when, when I, felt, I felt this direction for a long time, you know, we plan the calendar and look at dates for months and months in advance. And <laughs> it's funny because have you ever noticed if you if you kind of argue with God, you don't usually win. Have you noticed that? <laughs> you can argue, and that's fine. I think he's good with that. I mean, we see examples of that in Scripture. But, but um, what I really felt like he wanted us to talk about was generosity and giving. And I said to him, but God, we just did this service where we talked about missions and giving. He got, yeah, I, I know that. So uh, as I've been preparing and praying about this, um, I want to take us in maybe, a, maybe to that topic a different way than you're used to. Will that, will that be easier for you to swallow that way? <laughs> Let's do this. Um, in, in the New Testament, in, uh, you know, you have, you've, got, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, basically four biographies of Jesus. And they all come from different perspectives, and they were written by those biographers for different purposes. You know, Matthew, being a, being a Jew and a Jewish tax collector, his book is very orderly, and he's trying to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Promised One, to the Jews. And he's very, and if you look at the book, if you just step back and look at the way he lays out his gospel, it's really interesting because you can totally see the tax collector in him. He's got, he's got all these real clear segments. He'll have a segment of dialogue where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Then he'll have a teaching segment, then healing, and then just when he's with the disciples, and it's really clear. Then the book of Mark, and, and many of you probably know, he wrote the memories of Peter. And what kind of guy was Peter? Peter's jump out of the boat, right? Walk on water, jump out of the boat, swim to the shore and see Jesus. Everything Peter does is in a hurry. And because of that, Mark's rendition of the same biography is uh, literally half the size of, for instance, the book of Luke. 600 some verses compared to 1200 verses. And he tells the story really quick. And he's telling it really with passion, and he's, he's in a hurry. In fact, he uses the word immediately over 60 times in the book of Mark. It's not used that many times in the entire rest of the Bible. But in the book of Mark, he uses it over 60 times, immediately. And immediately Jesus did this, and this, and this, and this. So if you read his version, you know, it looked like Jesus was just frantic, always you know, going in a hurry. But that's Peter. That's what he saw. And then skipping to the book of John, very philosophical. And for that day, it was a really important way to look at, look at Jesus. You know, he starts off, he says, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That is very philosophical, which is great because that really appealed to the Greeks and the non-Jews who were coming into the kingdom. And then the book of Luke, 
It's such a special book. And we know that it was written by Luke, who was a physician, and he accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. And I love how he starts off his book. He says, oh, most excellent Theophilus. And then he says, you have heard of these things, and I want to give you an orderly account because I have researched them so that you can trust your faith. That's what you'd expect from a biographer, right? He went and talked to people, so he gets parts of the story that no one else got. He, he goes, and that's where we get, like, for instance, um, you hear Mary's Magnificat, you know, that song that she sings after she finds out, you know, that she's pregnant. I mean, that's something he had to go and research and find out and write down and put in his biography. You get in there a lot more being that he's Gentile, non-Jewish. You get a different picture. You get a lot more everything we see about the angels, for instance, and a lot of the intrigue we get in the different uh, diseases Jesus healed. Of course, you'd expect that. He's a doctor. He had these insights that the other guy said, well, that person was healed. And he says, this is what he was healed from. It's beautiful. I love it. And this particular story we look at, a lot of it, um, this story comes just from the book of Luke. And it's called, we call it the Good Samaritan. And oftentimes we jump in there. But I think it's important for us to go a little bit before that story to understand the full context. What was happening at the time is the Jewish leaders, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like him for a lot of reasons. You know, number one, they could understand. They understood he was upsetting their apple cart. He, they could understand that he was preaching something that was new. And then when he institutes the new covenant, for them, they weren't surprised. They knew that their whole way of life was being turned upside down. They didn't like also that he was a really intriguing, good teacher. And he was interesting and the people wanted to hear him. Where for them, when they would teach, they would be bored and they wouldn't pay attention. And yet when Jesus taught, he had crowds and, and multitudes would come and hear him talk. So... They started doing things like this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. They would do this where they would pose a question where it would be something that would be commonly debated either in their theological circles or even political. You know, we know on one occasion they, they tried to get him in on a tax debate. They said, who should, we, who should we pay taxes to or should we pay taxes? And Jesus is so clever at the way he takes care of this. So he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied with a question. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? How smart is that? He's not going to just walk into their traps. But, but look at the heart of the question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? A lot of times when somebody comes with a question, especially a skeptic like this, you might wonder, is he asking sincerely? Does he really want to know what it takes to inherit eternal life? Because he's talking to the giver of life. Jesus could have given him a lot of answers. He could have told him, believe in me and you will be saved. He could have said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, like he does in the book of John. But he didn't do that. Instead, he's trying to see where's this guy coming from, and he's trying to answer his question, the actual question he's asking. So he replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He knew well that this was the Jewish rules for everything. And Jesus says, right, do this and you will live. And then the man wanted to justify his actions. None of us would do that, right? We don't ever try to do that, right? We don't ever try to justify and say, well, I do it all pretty good, or I'm better than him or her. Or He says, do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? So not, he, could have just, he could have just said, yes, sir, I'll do it, and walk away, right? He could have gone ahead and done what Jesus asked, but instead he was trying to find a loophole. Classic, isn't it? Don't we do that? We want to find exactly how much we have to do and not anymore. 
none, none of us really want to live generously. I mean, uh, you know what? Let me dial that back a little bit because I do think you're a generous people. Let me say it this way. A lot of people hold back from really generous living. How much do I need to do? Now, I'm not criticizing anybody for doing this, but have you ever gotten the bill and they put the tip in it already? Doesn't that irritate you? You know, for me, a lot of times, even if it's generous in there, part of me says, I would have given you more, but you did this to me, so now that's all you get. I, I fight that. And I think about that sometimes. You have to, I've had friends, I, I never was a server, but I have friends who are servers, and they talk about how, you know, a lot of times it's the Christians after church on Sunday who don't tip well, and that, that grieves me. I think we should tip better than anybody else. And I know just a couple extra dollars on the bill can be a blessing for somebody who, yeah, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but a lot of, a lot of restaurants, they, don't, they, they pay them a, like a minimum wage, and then the tips is extra. And then the government tax them. This is, this is really the loophole. It's horrible. The government actually taxes them, assuming they'll get 15% in tip, whether they do or not. It's crazy. But that generosity thing. And then I, I think it's funny, too. You know, a lot of places now will give you like a little scale that'll tell you what the percentage is so you don't have to do the math. This one, I was somewhere the other day. I can't remember where I was at. And um, on, the, on the scale, it didn't even start at 15. It started at 22 which I <laughs> thought that was funny, too. So, so if you can't do math, you're going to have to pay more. So anyway, all that to say, so often we want to know how much and no further. There's no generosity there. We don't think about the fact that, you know what? Everybody's my neighbor. I want to care about everybody. I want to do for everybody as much as possible and as much as I can. He was looking to limit how much he had to do. He's fine with doing what Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, but only... <clears throat> if this is the neighbors I approve of. So Jesus, classic. Jesus replies with a story. Now Jesus could have just given him a list, right? How many like when, you, when you're talking to somebody and they tell you a whole story? I don't see a lot of hands. How many of you are thinking, <laughs> how many of you are just like, can you just get to the point and tell me what I ask? <laughs> I'm, I'm more that way, to be honest, but... When I read scripture and see what Jesus does, he does it for a reason. He doesn't do it like, I mean, we're just trying to tell the story. Jesus has a point to all of this, and he's teaching them with a story. So he goes into this story, and he says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem. Notice all the details. Jewish man from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I've never been there, but Jerusalem is up, and the road to Jericho is down. And he was attacked by bandits. Evidently, that road is a very precarious place to be and common for bandits to be there. And... They stripped him of his clothes. Why would they do that? Clothes were valuable. It's different for us. I mean, not that you're bandits, but you probably wouldn't steal someone's clothes unless maybe you, I don't know. They beat him up and they left him half dead beside the road. Half dead beside the road. By chance, I like how he says this, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, you know, a lot of versions would say Levite or whatever, but a temple assistant uh, walked over and looked at him lying there. At least he walked over and looked at him. You know, the, the priest walked on the other side of the road, didn't even look at him. Walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. <coughs> Let's, I don't want to get into a lot of detail here because of time, but why did they pass by? Now, you probably heard a lot of sermons, as I have. You know, and our imaginations can come up with a lot of reasons. There are actually a lot of good reasons. Most of us skip right to the point of the story because you've heard the story before. 
And you know that the good Samaritan is the one who stops and helps him. But before you judge those, that priest and that Levite too harshly, there were actual temple restrictions that they had to live by. And there were cleanliness standards that they had to live by. Now, Jesus violated those all the time because he touched sick people. He did it all the time. But if they were to have touched him, that meant that they would be ceremonially unclean and they would have to have gone through a period where they could not go into the temple. That's, that's just how the rules were, the law was. And, and here's what's funny about that is that priest, who knows, but um, in that time, there were a lot of priests, actually, and most of them only got to serve in the temple once a year. So he would have been probably chosen by lot, and he probably was thinking, oh, no, this is my only chance to serve this year. If I touch him, I will, not, I will miss my chance, and I won't be able to serve in the temple. I might as well turn around and go back home. There is actually a reason, which you might understand. Because it said he was stripped and naked and dirty and beaten and probably bloody a little bit. And who knows what disease he might have had or infection or whatever. Here's some other things to think about. These aren't as quite as, quite as uh, excusable, but priests were of a different class. I don't know if you realize that. I mean, because I don't consider myself a different class. And certainly in our society, it's not the same, at least in most of our churches. Now, some churches, it may be different. But in their society, the priest was upper class. Being a priest actually became a wealth, a wealth uh, garnering position to have. And, and here's the sad part about it is not only was it that way, but people assumed that wealthy people were blessed by God, loved more by God, deserved more respect because God respected them more. So the priest would have been himself, at least, thought of and the people would have thought of him as actually above or upper class and they probably would have thought of this guy getting robbed as not being uh, in his class. And we wouldn't necessarily think that's a good thing, but it is a thing. Here's the truth is, God judges the heart, not the wallet. He actually values, we know this, everybody. You know what else? I, I never thought of this really before, but um, what if the guy was faking it? I mean, what if he was in on the whole thing and, and, the, and the thieves were actually still up in the hills and whoever would stop and help, they would attack that guy too. Maybe the priest thought that. And it's just safer just to not even get involved. Because there's times where, you know, if you get involved, it could get messy and dirty and, and uh, who knows what's really going on. But the, the bottom line is they avoided him, right? We can find a lot of excuses for him and try to figure ways to, to make it. And, and uh, we can assume that he had good intentions. I would like to think that. And I'm sure he thought he had good intentions. I'm sure the priest did think that. But we do this, don't we? We judge ourselves by our good intentions, and yet we judge others by their actions. And I'm sure if you were in the story itself and you were the priest, you had every good intention, and the reason you avoided him was actually a good thing. And we can make up all sorts of good intentions for whatever we do that, that may not be as good, and yet we're really harsh to judge other people's actions because... We certainly know what their intentions were, and we just jump in on it. That's why we say, I mean, you know, motives matter. Let's be fair. Motives matter. They do, right? Isn't that why we say something happens and you say to them, what do you say? What were you thinking, right? Because motives do matter. And, and what they were thinking does have some measure on whether or not th th that you let them off the hook, at least to some degree, right? I mean, motives matter. You always, I mean, we do say things like that. What were you thinking? Why'd you do that? Or how could you? We're expecting that there's a reason there that may explain to some degree why they did what they did. Got to be careful about equating, you know, motives and actions. But having said that, actions matter too. You know that. 
You know, if, if, if the child knocks the vase off and it's broken and he says, I didn't mean to, you appreciate the fact they didn't mean to, but the vase is still broken, right? And they shouldn't have been swinging that doll around in, in the room. Not that I ever did that. Just, I just flashed back to a time when I did that. That's funny. I wrote that down. I never thought that. And then I just realized, yeah, I did do that. Um, <clears throat> Here's the thing, too. Actions matter because they actually, uh, most of our actions actually have real consequences. And the consequences don't care what your motives were. Have you ever noticed that? If your investments aren't doing good, you can say, but I meant to have it be a good investment. And when it's not, what do you, I mean, do they care? No. <laughs> when you, uh, uh, you know, most of the time our actions do, they either elicit pain or pleasure or benefits or costs or, I mean, real things like that don't consider your motives. Whether or not you save for in retirement and then it, you're at the end and you need money and you say, but I meant to, but it's not there. Your words, how many times have you said, well, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> What's more important, the way somebody hears it or the what you meant to say? <laughs> Some people may always hear you wrong, which is true. How about um, someone who has an affair? Well, I, I didn't intend for it to end up like this. Yeah, but it still has it still has consequences. The real crimes, taxes, casual comments. How about where you spend your time? Well, I meant to give more time to this, but you didn't. So those choices actually matter. Where you spend your time. Time's a commodity. It's one of those things that you spend. We all get the same amount of time, and then we choose where to spend it. I, I, I'm sure you've heard this before. Kids spell time um, or love. Sorry, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Have you heard that one? I heard this the other day, and it hit me really hard. When you, and somebody, somebody said that Plato said this, and I, if he did, that's amazing because that's a long time ago. But when you say you don't have time, what you really mean is I don't want to. Ouch. Actions have consequences. They're real. And, and motives are important, but the, in the end, it's, it's about what you do. So, so back to our story. The bottom line is they refused to help, right? Those guys refused to help. Why they did, I mean, if they thought it was someone else's job or they were too good for him or they didn't have time to be bothered. Maybe they felt like they didn't have the resources. Do you ever think of that? I mean, think of the priest. He's walking, he's got his robes, he's going to do his temple duty. Maybe he didn't have anything to help that guy with. Who knows? I don't know. He didn't, maybe he didn't have the, the cloths to bind him up or the oil to soothe his wounds or, or, or maybe even a donkey to put him on or whatever. He, maybe he just didn't, he didn't have what it took to help him. And his resources, you wonder sometimes, though, is what is worth our resources? I mean, what do we really have? We just sang that song, you know, even the breath God gives us is from him. And yet a lot of times we don't realize the finances we have are from him. And, and who gives you the ability to get wealth? And then ultimately, who's wealth is it are we a manager of it or is it ours do you own it and then what's the purpose of your things is it just to bring you pleasure for your personal enjoyment or for what you want to do or preserve it for your own family or there's a lot of yous in there huh you know what they were probably asking the priest and the levite the temple assistant what will it cost me to help him what will it cost me prestige Position, power, status, friends, losing his temple duties, the finances that might be involved. Maybe he might get his clothes dirty and have to borrow clothes from somebody else. Or the time involved, maybe he had a schedule to keep and he good, didn't have time. Or the friends, it was definitely a cost, right? 
there was a cost involved. And they no doubt were wondering, what would it cost? And then, jumping back in our story, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey. So he got off the donkey, put the man on the donkey where he was riding before. Now he's walking and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. I almost missed that part. He took care of him. We don't know how long. We don't know how long it took, but he took care of him. Then it says the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. You know what I've never thought of before? What will it cost him? What did it cost the Samaritan? You, you realize that whole class thing goes both ways. I mean, the Samaritan himself could have thought, oh, I can't be seen helping a Jewish guy, right? Status, friends. Do you think it, he worried about the cost and the money? Don't know. Doesn't say. What about his time? He probably didn't plan to spend the night there, but he spent the night taking care of this guy, probably lost some sleep over it. You know what the bottom line is? It did cost him something, but what everybody should have asked is what would it cost the him, but the him would be the beaten man, the man on the side of the road. Sometimes that might be a her or a them. What what does it cost them? If, If the priest and the temple assistant would have thought, if I walk on the other side, what's it gonna cost that man on the ground? I mean, his suffering, is it going to be prolonged? Is it, is it going to be permanent? Is it going to scar? Is it going to maybe lead to death or infection or, or who knows? He didn't think about that at all. All he thought about was himself. The temple assistant, the same thing. Even though he looked, he didn't do anything. He didn't invest anything, time, money, resources, nothing. He didn't care enough about what it was costing the man on the ground. All he cared about it was, was it was costing him. You know what the bottom line is? The Samaritan, he did what others could have done and I think even should have done. But why did he do it? Why did he do it? We don't know. He doesn't say. That's not part of Jesus' story. Jesus is making a point and that wasn't it. But I want you to think about this for a minute. He did what he could because he could and even because he should. And in today's standards, we don't operate that way. A lot of times we just do the minimum, just like the, the, <clears throat> the religious ruler was asking in the beginning is, who is my neighbor? How far do I have to go? And in our society today, we feel pretty good if we just do the minimum. But the fact is to live the way Christ challenges us to live means you go above and beyond that. And you ask, what is right? What can I do? What should I do? You realize, of course, there was a reason there was this racial thing. The Jews considered themselves the only true religion. And to be fair, they actually were. Did you ever think about that? They were right. They considered themselves closer to God, and they were. Now, here's where they start to go awry, because they considered themselves more pure and better and holier, and that they thought that because they were God's chosen people, that that made them intrinsically better, more righteous, more just. They were the insiders, the elite. They were perfection. And they looked upon other people like the man on the ground, or pardon me, like the Samaritan, like lost, dirty, heathen, unclean, interlopers, outsiders. 
they considered the Samaritans even worse than that. Because the Samaritans, they were half-breed Jews. They were, they were a people group that was kind of the remnant left over. When the, when the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon and Assyria, there were some left behind. And those left behind intermarried with the people around there. And they kind of had this, kind of this, not only were they ethnically half-breed, but they were also half-breed religiously. And they worshipped in a different place. And they didn't have the prophets that the Jews had all the way through the captivity. And it's interesting because... Did you follow what Jesus did there, the master storyteller? You know, a good storyteller does this. They, they tell a story where you can see yourself in the story, and you can relate to one or more of the characters. And here's what's interesting. As you think about it from that perspective, uh, Jesus is creating these characters, and he's telling cultural things. He mentions that it's a Jew, and he talks about the priest and Levite, and he talks about these different people, and then he brings a twist to the whole thing. And maybe what we miss as 21st century Americans is, the Jews who heard the story first, they probably didn't have the same reaction that you did when the priest walked on the other side. They would have thought that would have been okay because of his status. They, they bought into that whole system and they thought, well, he is better than us and he is different than us and he shouldn't stoop down and touch that person. And, and they probably thought the same thing of the, of the temple assistant and they knew all the requirements that were involved. They probably didn't even think about it until uh, they, didn't, they probably didn't relate to the rob man either because... Uh, that wouldn't be it. But then, then the part that they probably really got shocked at is the Samaritan part. For us, that just rolls right by us. For them, that would have been shocking. And they would have, wait a minute, he's making the Samaritan the hero. I see what he's doing there. You can't do that. That's not fair. That doesn't make sense. And as Jesus continues to tell the story, it had to sting because they might have expected another character to appear. Did you ever think of that? Maybe a servant who would have been in the class to help that guy. Or maybe a, a friend of his or an actual neighbor. Because remember, the whole point of the story was, who's my neighbor? And what they might have thought, Jesus would have said. And then, lo and behold, the man's neighbor shows up. Well, yeah, it's his job to do it. But when the Samaritan does it, and Jesus goes back to the story, he says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, now go and do the same. What Jesus did here is he equated you helping people with you worshiping God. Do you remember what the whole thing was? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do it like that, then you fulfill the law. That's what Jesus said. And it comes down to this. What does it mean to be neighborly? I mean, who is your neighbor and what's expected? I can't tell you. I, I, I mentioned it in the beginning, but I can't even tell you how many compliments you got as a church this last weekend from those missionaries. Those are high compliments. Like I said, they visit a lot of churches. They see a lot of people, a lot of God's people. When it comes down to it, what does it mean to be neighborly? It means to stop and give your time and your finances and your family. It's because it's the right thing, but not a limit. It's because it's what you want to do. Do you notice the little details Jesus threw in the story? He cared for him personally overnight. Then the next morning gave him two silver coins and said, if this doesn't cover it, I'll be back and I'll pay the rest. He didn't ask him how much. You know, when you get your car fixed, what do you do? You wait for the estimate to come. And if it's too high, you say, ah, maybe I'll take it somewhere else or maybe I'll do it myself or right. I'll get on YouTube and figure out how to fix it. He didn't do that. He said, whatever it takes, whatever it takes comes down to resources and relationships. Do we care about people like that? 
Now, some of you already give so much time, I, I'm blown away. In fact, some of you, I worry you give too much time. And I worry that you're not giving enough time to your family or your, yourself. Or and then some people among us don't give any time. I mean, the fact is we're all asked to give. You know, money, we'll talk more about that later. But in the end, there's so many things that we can give and to be neighborly about. I want us to do this for a minute, and I'd like you to just shut your eyes for a second. And I want to put us in the story. So if everybody would just shut your eyes. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're the one beaten up and you need someone to be neighborly and help you. Maybe that's you. And if that is, I want you to know we want to help. But if not, maybe you certainly, I, don't, I know you don't see yourselves as the priest or the temple assistant. I know that because you're good people. But I want to challenge you to go even a little bit further. I'll bet you that some of us have kind of taken the attitude that I do enough. And I, I'm not asking you to volunteer more. I'm just asking you to open your heart up to God and say, what does it take for me to be the neighbor you want me to be? You probably have skills you don't even realize. And in the body of Christ, we're all supposed to do our part. And for some people, it means holding a baby or teaching a Sunday school class. And we'll, we'll train and resource you for those things. Or we talked about how we've, we've been invested in converting to the, the um, LED lights and some of you might think, well, I don't know how to do that. But you could at least maybe hand a tool up or hand a bulb or whether it's helping with a meal. I mean, there's different people who've recovered from surgery or needed things done or maybe had a baby or a funeral that they might just need a meal made or help with events. You know, we have a hospitality team, for instance, the ones who help put on the Thanksgiving banquet. And we have other events if you wanted to help with that, whether that was decorating or set up or in the kitchen or clean up. I bet you there's some people here you don't even know what you could contribute or maybe you think you couldn't, but God has things for you and put things in you that you can't even imagine yet. I remember years ago, I was talking to somebody and I asked them if they wanted to help volunteer with youth ministry and they were in their late 60s and they said, oh, I can't do that. I'm too old. And I said, really? Because I guarantee you most of these kids don't have a grandparent like you because they didn't. And that person was one of the best volunteers I ever had the wealth of information and knowledge and life experience and love and care and patience. It's hard to find in somebody who's 22. With your eyes still closed, I want to just talk about this for a second. I'm not trying to meddle in anybody, but relationships are messy, aren't they? Surface is safe. And if all we have to do is come on Sunday and Maybe you put something in the offering, you've taken care of your duty. But what I'm asking is, is it possible that there's people here who need you in their life? Shared burdens, they say, are half the burden and shared joys are twice the joy. And is there room in your heart for people that maybe aren't like you? That story Jesus told hit on a lot, a lot of areas. Hit on on people who are different, it hit on different classes, it hit on religious, non-religious, it hit on people who have needs that are maybe overwhelming, but together we can help meet those needs. I just wonder how generous you are. Let me just do this. As we get ready to close, and Pastor Jeremy comes to kind of close us out totally, but I want to just pray for us for a minute. As we've been praying, uh, with your eyes closed, as I've been talking to you, I'm just wondering if anybody has, maybe if you've, as you've heard the story, you've wondered, God, is there some more I need to do? You feel like maybe God is speaking to you about something and you're not even sure what it is, but you feel like he's 
maybe talking to you about generosity. Anybody here like that? You just raise your hand and say, yeah, God is talking to me. I'm not sure for sure what he's saying, but he is. Anybody at all? See those hands. Appreciate that. Maybe, like I said a minute ago, somebody here might feel like you're the one actually beaten up a little bit. And we could end this morning by praying for you. And if you'd be willing to share some of those needs, we'd try to help come alongside and meet them. But anybody here, again, with your eyes closed, just for privacy's sake, anybody here feel like maybe you're beaten up a little? Anybody at all? All right. Let me just pray over us, and uh, then Pastor Jeremy will close us, and you'll all beat the weather. Let's just pray. Father, I'm so grateful that we live in a country where, where we're safe. For the most part, and we have things that other people can't even dream of. And I'm thankful, too, for a church that loves one another and provides for one another. And I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that you would open our hearts to be even more generous. At times where we think we've done enough, that you would just open up our hearts, whether that means serving or giving or coming alongside or, or being a good Samaritan to somebody and binding up their wounds and their hurts. I pray, God, you'd open our eyes to that and our hearts to that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.